Hello, everyone. I am John Coleman, and this is a recording of Christian History and Ideas with myself and Dr. Nirmal Das. Welcome, Dr. Das. Great to be here, John. Thanks so much. In this merry month of June uh, recording, we are also doing so on the Feast of the Sacred Heart. And uh, we hey, we spent a lot of time coordinating this uh, color-coded ties and, and all this, so I hope the audience appreciates that. But these little uh, cultural things um, are charming in their way, but actually, if you think about it, that's what we're, we're about here on this channel, more than just um, aesthetics, great fashion, but also that type of uh, Christian culture in a more serious way as well. And today, we're going to extrapolate on a topic which has come up in a different project uh, that has uh, involved both Dr. Das and myself, and that is the 19th century concept, and maybe Dr. Das, we can even bring it back to the 18th century, of the Jesus as myth idea. We're going to extrapolate on that, and as I turn on my light here, uh, for proper lighting um, inside baseball there. Uh, as we do that, we're going to um, get into one of the topics which featured in a threaded discussion these past couple months between Dr. Nirmal Das and Mr. Joseph Atwell. So if you're, as a viewer, are interested in this topic, I turn your attention towards that series on the Apocastastasis channel. And I suppose, Nirmal, it would be appropriate to get that up on the Christian History um, channel as well, that back and forth. I think that would be a great idea. Yes, I think that would be good. Great. So I will do that um, soon or late. Uh, certainly sooner is, is the preference there. At the end of this recording, which will go on for about another 40 minutes or so, I'm going to ask Dr. Das to talk about the postal, and I will give a little bit of an explanation of Apocasostasis, our uh, day jobs, uh, in a sense, but ones uh, that, that I think feature also into the point of this series, which is trying to get, uh, it, as we, we get off to the races here, Dr. Doss, what are we doing on this, this series? I, I'm going to say we're trying to get beyond just a surface level um, discussion of faith as it regards culture. Is that fair to say? That's, I think that's a great way to say it, because what we really want to do is to understand the dynamics of our, the, the, the dynamics of the various cultural forces at play in which we as Christians have to interact continually and daily. Um, some people see this as attacks, others see this as apologetics. Uh, we want to get into the heart of the matter as to what this is all about. Excellent. And we will have cause, I'm sure, in our, our back and forth now to kind of recap some of the themes of our past couple episodes, which build in a certain sense to each one. And I won't um, waste any time doing that, that kind of formalized recap. The viewer can go back to previous episodes, and I think it will become very clear um, the previous topics that led up to this late morning recording. But as we do that, Dr. Das, I think we'll begin with a, a verse to act as a type of fulcrum for our discussion here from St. Peter, 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, 16. So that's uh, chapter 1, verse 16 of 2 Peter. So a lot of numbers there. It's one of those, uh, those, uh, those Bible citations there. Okay. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. So that is our lead-off verse, and again, 2 Peter 1, 16. So, Nimal, can you sketch out um, our next step here in our discussion? Sure. Um uh, by the way, using that uh, <clears throat> verse as our launching point, um, it's interesting um, that St. Peter in that um, 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 verse tells us that when we look at Christ and history or Jesus as history, um, we are not entering into the same mindset, the same realm as that inhabited by the various Greeks and Greek and Romans, Roman gods. Um, 
which are, of course, a composition of various stories and whatnot. So we are being told that this is not really a story in the traditional sense of the word as the faith systems of that time understood uh, stories. So we're talking about uh, not sacred stories or holy stories according to their faith system, the pagan faith system, but we're really talking about um, uh, revelation, uh, for lack of a better term. We can talk about this some other way. Uh, but this idea of God's appearance in history, I think, is the key here, that what we are witnessing is not um, um, an imaginary event, but rather something that is immediate and historical. And that has been the problem for a lot of people starting in the 18th century, I guess, uh, a little bit earlier too, but 18th century for sure. Um, there are a few medieval ones, but they never question that much. Um, <clears throat> but the 18th century begins this whole um, divergence of history from Christianity. This is how I see it in a way. It's how Christianity and history split apart, um, where uh, St. Peter in, in, in that verse has it as one and the same um, through various historical forces and cultural forces. That sameness, that unity has been, of course, split apart. And that has been, unfortunately, the tragedy of historical Christianity, where unity is continually split apart and destroyed, restructured, you know, destroyed again, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's one of those tragedies of our faith system that uh, somehow we create this kind of dynamic as well. So he is pointing us to, uh, to con this concept of unity of history and faith, which I think is very essential here. Excellent. And I think the recording of uh, this and the timing of it on the Feast of the Sacred Heart is a good um, a good point to, I suppose, um, give the, the other side of what we went over in the last couple episodes, as I see it. And maybe we can suss this out a bit, Doctor. So... In our last recordings, we, we talked about the the uh, the benefits even, and certainly the advisability of reading mythology. And as I go over the the previous recordings and think about where we were going, and, and that's the great benefit of, of the internet for all of its curses and, and recording technology, you can kind of mull over things from the horse's mouth. And one of the things I discerned is We had, re, in a sense, reverse engineered um, this, this uh, topic, which keeps coming up. So this topic, which has come up, which is the idea that Christ is an amalgam of various mythologies. In a few moments, we'll we'll give examples both from uh, recent wretched internet history as well as more um, more prosaic works from the past century of this concept. But one of the things we had had um, analyzed our, our finger on the pulse is that the, the pop notion of Christianity being an amalgam of, of, of various uh, first century religions can be done also in the backward sense, in the sense that it's not that Christianity is a, a compilation so much as the previous um, pagan religions were in, in, in the shadows, groping in the darkness, in a sense, were in fact touching on, on fundamental realities, but without the benefit of revelation, right? So that's why you have, um, you know, themes of maternity or themes of sacrifice and so forth coming up. Is that fair to say? So that's, that's a great way of saying it and a great summary of what we've been talking about. Um, and what I would uh, suggest as a way to uh, move forward is that this groping of humanity for truth, uh, that's what we're getting at, for religious and spiritual truth, um, finds fulfillment in various ways. And if we imagine history, history as a, um, not as a, um, um, you know, linear progression, but as, a, as a, a, I guess, a, a, a up and down relationship, <clears throat> which would be a better way of looking at it, what we end up with is this idea, or I, I think uh, what, um, uh, a concept that is essential to defining what the humanity is, is this idea that um, 
the relationship with anything other than human, the supernatural, requires certain kinds of behavior, consistent patterns, and so forth. And those help us understand where we are supposed to be at with the supernatural. Um, and it's this process of discovery and um, relationships with what is above uh, that determines so much of what um, humanity has been doing. And this, in a way, finds fulfillment or rather completion um, in, in Jesus, in, in Christ. And that completion, I think, is the grand, uh, the grand theme of Christianity, if we were to look at its historical destiny, is that it becomes this process in which unity can be achieved. Um, and I think, aside from all kinds of theological issues, um, the grand um, um, event in history um, is this idea of humanity belonging together. Previously, humanity is split apart, and we see this in all kinds of myths and so forth. Um, I know people say the polytheists were uh, more uh, peaceful than the monotheists. It's, um, <clears throat> it's a contention made by uh, various people, uh, but it's not really true as to what is going on. What we have is, is, uh, is this notion of humanity split apart, of humanity not knowing how to come together um, until, of course, um, Christianity comes along and makes people aware of their common, uh, not only heritage, but common destiny. So humanity didn't have a common destiny. In fact, most polytheistic religions didn't have a concept of the soul. Uh, there was this thing called the shade or something, but no one knew what happened after death. Um, there were all kinds of speculations and magic potions and formulas and whatnot in order to somehow deal with that notion. Uh, but that notion that something happened after death is a very foggy one. And I think that is the key here in understanding how humanity is split apart. Um, it doesn't understand what its final eternal destiny is. Uh, therefore, it gropes about in all kinds of fragmented ways in order to achieve it. So that's, um, I think that uh, helps us understand the grander uh, vision that uh, Christianity offers to humanity, one of unity. And unfortunately, this concept of unity has now been um, um, corrupted, I guess, for lack of a better term, through various historical and cultural means, uh, where unity can become all kinds of political action and whatnot. Uh, but this idea of humanity belonging together is a very unique Christian one. Um, yes, the Roman world did achieve something of that nature in its, uh, what they call the Pax Romana, but it wasn't a unity of, of humanity. It was a political unity, of course. Here we're talking about something different, i.e. the eternal destiny of every human being on the planet. Um, that grand vision, of course, is what happens. Um, and in my mind, that grand vision ultimately destroys the polytheistic vision. Uh, because the polytheistic vision cannot offer that, uh, that worldview as such. <clears throat> In a few moments, we're going to recap the, uh, the specific 19th century thesis and get into certain thinkers and, and whatnot. If in our last couple episodes, Dr. Das, we talked about the, um, the benefits or the whatever, um, adjective we might want to use, the nouns or whatever, um, of, of mythology and the similarities, which we'll, we'll touch on here, I think, and this is why I said it's appropriate um, our time of filming, to, to talk about momentarily, before we get into the next uh, major section here, the one of the major differences of Christianity, and that is the physicality and the historical, the, the, the claims of, of historical events actually happening. And I thought I would just um, mention um, on this Feast of the Sacred Heart, um, just a few antiphons, which I think um, bring this up from the office. And of course, I moved my bookmarker to the wrong uh, page. All right. But pay attention. Let us all, uh, viewers and participants in this conversation, to the physicality here, right? Um, especially for non on, on this feast, right? Unus melitum lancia latus Jesus aparuit, 
one of the soldiers um, opened the side of Jesus at uh, continua exivit sanguis et aqua, and, and out came uh, blood and water. And whilst there are many, many similarities thematically with Christianity, um, that physical and that historical claim is um, a great difference. And, and we want to keep that in mind in these um, recordings around, around this topic. Yes, exactly. Um, and that um, symbolic difference, let's put it that way, uh, to, to connect up with the pagan myths, the symbolic difference um, is the essential thing that we're talking about, i.e. Uh, when sacrifice occurs, which happens to all the, in, within all polytheistic contexts, uh, there's always sacrifice of some sort. What we're talking about is a sacrifice that is not uh, simply um, one that um, uh, uh, placates God, makes him happy, or the gods, but rather the sacrifice is about bringing humanity to its ultimate and final and eternal destiny. Um, here's a world of a difference here between pagan concepts of sacrifice and the sacrifice on the cross. Uh, we're really talking about that same theme again that we've been uh, that we've uh, discovered or are, have, are now discussing this unity, this concept of bringing people together. Um, and you know, this is what um, I guess um, uh, encourages Saint Paul to say that uh, we are neither Greek uh, nor Jew, Jew or Greek in Christ, neither male or female. Um, I think that is the whole point here uh, of what. Um, sacrifice, what uh, religion as such, uh, what uh, institutions as such mean uh, in the new context. So it's a replacement, not simply of all the symbolic uh, actions that humans have been doing all this time, but and institutional, but also it's a mind replacement. Um, it's, uh, you know, uh, brain surgery, <laughs> in a way, it's bringing uh, a different mindset into the human skull. Uh, and saying, sure, you've been thinking along these lines all this time, but now it's time to think differently. And this is how you think differently by looking at these kinds of concepts. And the primary one is this idea of, or the question, what brings humanity together? It isn't in our day, we're discovering politics. Um, it's something else, you know? So this question I think is not a new one, um, but it's it's an important and essential one to historical Christianity. And I think it's this question that ultimately brings us to our larger discussion of, um, of um, people saying Jesus is a myth because they assume that uh, that question is best answered by destroying the divinity of Christ and replacing it with something else. Um, and this will bring human beings together. This is the drive in, in England in the Unitarian uh, movement uh, that takes place. What will bring us together? What is keeping us apart? This whole notion of, it's a dance really, isn't it? It's a historical dance. People come together, people split up. What, what's going on here? How do we mend this? Um, and this process or attempts at mending create not only strength in Christianity, but also flaws in the political system. And that, that dance is, I think, what, uh, what is, is really interesting in, in this regard. And perhaps now we can turn towards the 18th and 19th century uh, concept of, of this amalgamation. And I'm myself recording this from uh, a part of America called New England, and we certainly had a, a tremendous amount of back and forth in the history of, of Unitarianism and Trinitarianism prior to our Civil War, and it, it's a, quite an interesting chapter. There was a point um, in the 18, uh, 1850s where... Um, you know, it'd be particularly Boston for various reasons, but where a lot of the American Unitarians got off the ground. Um, and some of them morphed into another group altogether called Transcendentalists. But in Boston, at one point, it was almost Sunday by Sunday, different churches were voting, and the whole, you know, the different, like the battlefront was moving across the town between Unitarians and Trinitarians. It's interesting little uh, chapter there in religious history, but one with great ramifications, as Dr. Doss mentioned. 
Exactly, because what is happening with the this whole problem of Trinitarians and Unitarians is uh, what we would call in history uh, the Victorian crisis of faith. Um, and that is a very interesting uh, occurrence in, um, uh, well, in Europe, uh, but it's a very interesting occurrence within the middle class of Europe. Industrial revolution has happened. People have a bit of money. They have lots of, um, you know, uh, expendable cash. They're sending, spending it on trinkets and whatnot, uh, and even travel and nice food, uh, etc. But with it comes this idea of questioning what this is all about, where this is leading us, and more importantly, it's beginning to create a different kind of a mindset uh, from the one previous. And in my view of looking at history, I always regard um, this, these time periods, I regard the Middle Ages as a long Middle Ages. I don't subscribe to that view where, you know, you have the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, the, the Renaissance and this and that. Um, I think it was a long Middle Ages that begins with the you know, supposed fall of the Roman Empire, which I think is a transformation or the Christianization of the Roman Empire. Um, so the Christianization of the Roman world until the 19th century, I think, is the long Middle Age. Uh, these are the long Middle Ages because things don't dramatically change that. Well, yes, there is up and ups and downs and all that sort of thing. But the mindset doesn't change. It's that mindset that I first mentioned um, at the very beginning. That persists for, you know, uh, nearly a millennia and a half um, or actually two almost because um, we're looking at 1900, um, 1800, sorry. Um, so what's going on here, I think, is this transition from one mindset from that long Middle Ages into what we will now call modernity or modernism. Um, and that divorce from the old mindset into the new is going to cause us all problems. So, And Unitarianism is the first step uh, in England um, um, you know, among you know, various uh, people, scholars, and so forth, who are now saying that perhaps there are certain things in Christianity that are not really up to date, that they are outmoded and outdated. And we are now entering into a modern new age and religion must keep up so it doesn't get left behind. So Unitarianism and, and you know, other uh, such movements are really attempts at upgrading Christianity from its medieval root saying that medievalism is kind of, you know, dark ages. We need to go become modern. Uh, and so how do we do this? We do it this way. Yes, that would be a great episode in the future to talk about the, um, the shift, which many, many people um, are not aware of between, we'll say, uh, a medieval worldview looking in the past and how that shifted towards the future. But if I can offer uh, a little bit of my, uh, my, my expertise here, um, keep in mind for, for viewers who may not uh, have their nose in 19th century books as much as I do, um, just because of my line of work, uh, do keep in mind, as Dr. Das says, the role of the Industrial Revolution and the fact that, um, if not literally every day, very regularly people are are or claiming to have, you know, discovered massive ways to make life easier, massive improvements in terms of physical comfort and, and uh, life expectancy and, and, and this sort of thing. And what that and not to mention the uh, the philosophical uh, conclusions of evolution and and um, other things, too. That and the fact that you're living in a world before the First World War, when you could find out the the the, the double-edged sword of machinery. Um, keep all that in mind as Dr. Doss is, you know, trying to lay out Unitarianism and then certain uh, academic theories that that um, go along with that, like the Jesus's myth idea. Uh, keep that in mind because keep what in mind. Keep the um, the mentalité of um, of the 19th century mind. It's not our 20th or 21st century mindset when it comes to progress. They're, those Western people are, um, you know, like a babe in the woods in a certain way. They haven't seen um, 
you know, the manipulation and, and the violence and so forth, atom bombs and the downside of modernity. So um, that's how ideas like religious evolution and philosophical evolution can get off the ground in the 19th century. Just part that that optimism about tomorrow, about progress is so pronounced. Yes, and that idea of progress um, is not a negative thing, as, as you rightly point out. It's not something to be feared or um, doubted. Um, and also, I would add to that notion of um, the optimism um, is this idea that, um, um, I guess for lack of a better term, it's, it's heightened individualism, um, that the individual has unlimited potential for betterment, that it's only about application of one's talents to the raw material of the world and the world will change for your benefit. Um, so that optimism uh, gets, uh, gets expressed by way of this um, extreme individualism where everyone has this idea that all I have to do is become this or that, get training in this or that, and then I can go and launch into my own, uh, into my own progress. So you have cultural progress, I guess, and you have individual uh, progress. So I would add to that that what we're also seeing then uh, in the 19th century uh, and in the demise of the Middle Ages um, is this expression of, of heightened individualism where people can, through personal effort, improve their lot. Um, and society then should be built to facilitate that improvement. Um, and in that process, of course, in that process of self-improvement, religion, the church, are not seen as allies because the church and religion impose certain kind of restrictions on uh, runaway individualism. Uh, you cannot simply be, you know, uh, out going wild, uh, looking for things that other people will have to pay for uh, just because you want them i.e. Christianity as such, let's just you know, be blunt, becomes um, identified as a problem. And this is another 19th century legacy that we are, of course, still dealing with. Uh, Christianity is seen as a hindrance, as a way to block, like I said, individualism, and more importantly, it's seen as a way to pull us back to that medievalism that we no longer want. Uh, because remember, we're progressive. We're the 19th century, and we must proceed uh, into the bright future. And we do not want any dead weight holding us back. So all of these um, ideas of Christianity, negative ideas of Christianity as holding human beings back of course, become very prevalent. And I would conjecture or contend that they really precede, um, they precede, um, you know, they precede Darwin for sure, but they precede, precede the whole concept of evolution itself as well. Because, you know, evolution uh, in the 19th century has a prehistory previous to Darwin. Um, so I would suggest that <clears throat> with this idea of progress with this idea of individualism also comes this idea that um, uh, Christianity is something that needs to change. Uh, we hear this term all the time that Christianity needs to be relevant. Um, and what does that mean? It means it has to stay on top of the changes that are happening continually in um, the culture and Christianity must change and adjust to those changes. If it doesn't, it's going to be left behind. Um, <clears throat> go ahead. Yep. If I may interject, in fairness to the um, the critics of Christianity in the 19th century, getting back to a topic we brought up maybe in episode, episode three or four, Dr. Das, uh, in fairness, the, the Christianity that's existing in the 19th century is um, in the Protestant world is is quickly spinning into uh, doctrinal confusion and um, 
uh, our favorite word here, ham-fistedness. Um, I have a book here. I, I'll, I'll address the Catholic world in a second. But I have a book uh, behind me. I won't disrupt my whole stack there. Um, but it's by Horace Mann, who is considered the father of our public education system, a very likable figure in many regards. But just as a little... You know, trying you know trying to be fair um, and to understand the scope. Now, I'm not saying that you're not being fair. I'm just to understand the scope of things. Man describes he's writing in the mid 1850s with in America. I don't know if you have this in Canada. We had all these religious revivals in the mid. Um, this is where you get American tent meetings and things and Mormons and whatever. And he describes a type of handfistness with his brother dying. And, and he uses this as a snapshot of Christianity in his milieu. He becomes a Unitarian, right, which is interesting about public education and, and this sort of thing. But he describes at his brother's funeral, the minister decided it was a great idea to preach about hell. And it's a type of and, – and maybe this gets to our a crux of, of – I'll get to the crux, but also the Catholic world is completely on the back foot by the 19th century after the French Revolution. It's entering its own, I would say, intellectual distortions and perceptions, and especially on the on the local, you know, the the faithful level. But one of the the the, the things we see, getting back to as we've talked about in this recording, the physicality of Christianity is that by the 19th century, it seems to me. Um, especially egregious in the Protestant world, but also tending that way in the Catholic world, um, that Christianity is unmoored from physicality. It becomes increasingly just this intellectual idea. And that can uh, remove from what physicality, from sacramentalism, from um, physical prayers like the office. And, and this medieval, this thing that the medievals understood and the early church understood by the good old days in the 19th century, even Christianity is entering its own um, amnesia of sorts. Exactly, it is. And what is going on with this kind of amnesia is that it's been aligned with this uh, ideology, I guess, for lack of a better term, is being aligned with this ideology of what determines um, superstition and what is determined as enlightenment or true religion. Um, and this uh, bifurcation, this distinction, is a very 19th century concept, this idea of superstition um, and determining what is superstitious and what is not. And then, of course, ridiculing that which is superstitious and trying to get rid of it from uh, society and from individual life. Um, so a lot of what is passed on as or seen as medieval Christianity is shown to be riddled with uh, superstition. Um, and this uh, superstition, of course, is something that must be overcome by um, a better faith, a better system, a better approach even you know a better way of um, institutionalizing uh, Christianity as such there has to be there have to be institutional changes uh, that need to be brought about um, so a lot of this stuff is actually uh, um, driving a, a kind of a negative image of Christianity a negative image that Christianity never had really to be honest until you know the 17 until the 18th century with the revolution the French Revolution and all that um, uh, actually, uh, with um, uh, what's his name, Thomas Paine is one of the grand, um, you know, masters of this anti-Christian, you know, sentimentality. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, um, this idea that Christianity has also has negativity to offer, uh, as opposed to positivity, um, is something that is very essential to what is uh, now going to be constructing the new mindset, the industrial revolution mindset is going to be looking at Christianity no longer in a positive way, but also in a negative manner. What is superstitious in Christianity? we got to clean that out. Um, and once we start looking at the superstitious stuff, well, then let's, you know, let's, uh, let's talk about everything. Um, and in that talk, of course, is who Christ is. Who is Jesus? Um, and that brings us to our, you know, discussion generally we were looking at. Who is Jesus? What is Jesus? Um, is he really the son of God? Is he really what he says he is? Do people really rise up from the dead when they die? I've never seen it. Have you seen it? Uh, those kinds of questions suddenly become 
very popular. Um, and those uh, explanations offered to these kinds of questions stem from this idea that we have to clarify the superstitious, the old medieval hangovers. Um, you know, if you look at 19th century novels, and I'm sure you've read those, the medieval world is always riddled with, you know, drooling monks torturing, you know, beautiful maidens and uh, this and that, you know, uh, that grand narrative of somehow the church or Christianity being riddled with superstition. <clears throat> and it's our job to clean it up. Um, of course, that impetus is the Reformation and all that sort of thing. But it comes and goes, but it really is strong in the 18th, uh, sorry, in the 19th century. And I think, um, this is where we started. I think this is where we have this idea of a crisis of faith uh, in that in that time period. Um, because what happens basically is that people just stop believing and no one goes to church. <laughs> you know, suddenly you have people not showing up in church and churches being just empty. Uh, and it's a concept that uh, it's a it's a process or a movement that never happened before in Christendom. People always went to church at least on Sunday, if nothing else. Um, and that idea of non-attendance, of a non-commitment to the institution also comes about at the same time as the historicity of Jesus is being called into question. So it's a very interesting process as to how a new mindset is being built, a new society is being built, and a new world is attempting, uh, is, is, is being in the process of being built. And this, this process of building and creating something new is a very potent mythology of the 19th century. We still have it, of course, <clears throat> but it's a very potent mythology that starts at that time. Dr. Das, as we um, come to the closing parts of this setup uh, episode, uh, setting up for the, the breakdown of the 19th century idea of Jesus as myth, and we're going to get into some, certain of the thinkers and, and kind of just give a, a synopsis of that phenomena. Um, maybe we can, or I can give a few uh, 20th century uh, examples of this, or 21st century. And um, also, I think we're going to see something, as I, as I mentioned, just three examples of, um, of knowledge, pop knowledge. And um, maybe we can close up with some, some comments there before we, we um, mention our sites and uh, this any viewers watching, by the way, are certainly welcome to submit your comments as well. Is that a good idea, Dr. Das? Great idea. Yes, let's do that. All right. Now, when I was coming up, uh, when I was a little bit younger, as the song says, uh, there was a series of films in the English language called uh, Zeitgeist, the Zeitgeist series, by a gentleman with two first names called Peter Joseph. And... Uh, this, uh, there's a, a clip, I think I'll put it in the description of this video. I know Dr. Das has seen it. Um, there is a, in from the first uh, edition of that series, there's a, about a 10 minute um, explanation of, you know, uh, hey, look, there's Osiris and he came back from the dead and, and so did Jesus. And here's um, Isis with with a baby um, with a baby, and and oh, here's the Virgin Mary with a baby. And doesn't the bishop's hat look a lot like Dagon's head or whatever? <laughs> and um, you know the the Hindus had a holy book, and look, the Christians have a holy book. And um, oh my goodness, the the chief Roman priest was called the Pontifex Maximus, and this who is the Pope? Oh my goodness, and. Um, that, that would be worthwhile looking at just to understand, um, I, I think, two things of what we're dealing with in the 21st century. One is the idea itself, which we're going to break down in, in the next episode, which, by the way, Inside Baseball, we're just going to record after a little break today. So the viewers who are watching, just hang around and we'll be back on. Um, and then the video will ghost for about two weeks and then I'll put it back up. But it will be live. Anyway, um, one of the things you see in the Zeitgeist film is the is the theory itself of, of the amalgamation, right, which is easy to comprehend. Another thing I want to bring up as we close off this recording, Dr. Doss, and maybe you can have a few words on this point um, in this time around, um, is also um, people who read books from the 20th century will be familiar with this book, um, H.G. Wells' Outline of History. 
right? Um, he gets into this idea very much, but he he has a bit more elbow room, and he fleshes that out a bit more. It's still incompatible with, with Christianity, and we would argue with the historical record, but it is laid out in a much more fuller manner. I also have another book, which is here, called uh, Caesar and Christ by Will and Ariel Durant. This is part of a series, um, which you can kind of see here, called The Story of Civilization. And he lays it out, and the wife, that same idea over really thousands of pages, because he revisits the idea. And one of the things where he Durant lays it out so well that it's nearly it nearly is compatible because there are nuances that he's bringing in about I think things that we've brought up here that there certain themes we've brought up, but it, it's still you know where he he lands on the topic. So one thing that we will talk about next episode is the theory itself. But Dr. Das, do you perceive a certain telescoping or narrowing of the discussion? Meaning you have a book from the the, a series of books from the 20th century which bring up this this idea over thousands of pages. This is all technically one book in a sense, right? Then you have the story of um, the outline of history, right, where the same idea is, is chopped down. And then we have Peter Joseph 50 years later or 70 years later with a 10-minute clip. And to, to close up this diatribe, um, I remember um, a, a selection from a book, which I don't think people read so much anymore, called Fahrenheit 451. And the, the author, uh, Bradbury, I believe, he talks about, you know, the Western mind going from the, from the cradle to manhood back into the cradle again with, you know, periodicals, summarizing, summarizing, vomiting up, regurgitating, <clears throat> narrowing things down. So maybe we can close up Dr. Doss with a commentary, not on the idea, we'll save that for the next episode, but also just the the lack of, of thoroughness for, for presenters and also for the audiences now for these very dangerous ideas and very powerful ideas. Yes, uh, and I think you've hit it on the head with this idea of both danger and power. Uh, those are the two words here that are very, very important for us to keep in mind as we, as I kind of discuss uh, what you just mentioned. Uh, and you've done a great job, I think, there summarizing um, the progress in 19th century thought that leads us to um, uh, Durant and um, and and so forth. H.G. Uh, Wells, <clears throat> because they really are the conclusion of that entire project of looking at Christianity in a certain way. Uh, and that project, of course, reaches its height in this idea of minimizing it to a talking point so much that it can become a 10 minute video and people have the takeaways and they're convinced <clears throat> and the job is done. And now we no longer need Christianity. It's another but notice <clears throat> the, the impetus is the same thing. The impetus is still Christianity has no room in the modern world. That some parts of Christianity must be excluded, i.e. they're just like, oh, this pagan myth from ancient Egypt, it's you know Anubis, Horus, Osiris, all these names that are thrown at you. Uh, often thrown at people who have, unfortunately, uh, little context in, say, ancient Egypt or, or you know, ancient India or Central Asia or China. All these ideas that are just lumped together and thrown at you, and you have to deal with them. Uh, and the best way you can deal with them is say, okay, I take, I accept it. You know, that's a normal um, reaction. And I think that's a rhetorical strategy, to be honest. Um, it's 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 a way to convince people. You just you know, throw everything in the kitchen sink at them, and then they'll, of course, you know, they're just not, they're not going to do anything. They're just going to be, you know, deer in the headlights sort of approach, and then, okay, I accept everything. Uh, so uh, that aside, what we're really talking about when you're talking about this telescoping <clears throat> is this idea that what we need to do is look at the essential qualities 
say in Christianity, for lack of a better example, since we're on that topic, that there are essential Christianities. And this happens with other religions. They do the same thing. Uh, and this is why perhaps in another time we can look at how other religions developed in the 19th century. So what we take as Hinduism and Sikhism and Shintoism and all these things, all these items, all these so-called traditional historical religions of the past in, a, in other parts of the world really are 19th century constructions and really are 19th century reactions, uh, non-Christian reaction, 19th century reactions to Christianity. Um, that's another topic we can get into. But the point is this reconstruction of faith systems of what human beings ought to believe in the 19th um, century in the modern world is an agenda, uh, uh, laying out of agendas. Um, this is what you do in order to be a real progressive human being. <clears throat> this is what you do if you want to be a regressive, superstitious human being. Um, and we laugh at that or tisk tisk and shake our heads at that and we want or want that. Yes, that is a good thing. Um, notice the shift <clears throat> where now we have a different kind of a mindset that is weighing spiritual um, expectations, spiritual demands, and even um, uh, spiritual um, alignment. Which part, which aspect of faith are you going to align with? Are you going to be that dark age medievalist? Or are you going to be the progressive, you know, um, uh, a progressive enlightened human being? Um, so this, these demands on the individual are becoming more intense, by the way. This is my point, I guess, um, with all of this stuff. So that 10-minute video that you sent me is a very intense demand on a person who may not have any background in any of this stuff and is just thrown into this video, you know, watching mode uh, because some friends send him that video and he has zero context for any of this, of course he's going to believe what? Mitra also was born on the 25th, had a virgin mother, died and was buried and et cetera, et cetera. And so was Anubis and so was Horus and et cetera. All these things are thrown at you. And <clears throat> this is in a way the corruption also of our education system where we are creating a kind of, where we have created a mindset that <clears throat> cannot analyze complexity, rather demands simplicity, uh, continually demands simplicity. Um, and um, a friend of mine who's passed away, he was a professor of mine actually, wrote a very interesting book called um, Simplex or something. Sim I, it's right there, I should, I'll, I'll get it next time uh, after the rummage around. Wonderful book. Um, and he asked, and he tried to answer this very interesting question, but I think it's it's a fundamental one to what we're asking, what we're discussing. He asked this question, why is it that we are building such complex technology that requires less and less mental mind, um, you know, uh, intelligence, i.e. everything is clickable. And yet when we click, there's an intensely sophisticated industry and technology behind that ability to click something on a screen. We don't understand any of that stuff. We are unable to understand the complexity behind that simple mechanical movement that we make uh, with our finger, uh, click something. Uh, so that, I think for me, is the prime analogy of where we're at. It starts in the 19th century, but where we're at this demand for simplicity, break it down for me, make it simple for me, you know, make it digestible. Uh, all these terms that we have invented that take us away from complexity, the difficulty, uh, the demand to use our minds more than simply in a very, you know, rudimentary way to, to a demand that says, no, make it all simple. I just, I don't have much time. I got 10 minutes, you know, give it all, give me, break it all down for me and I'll believe you. Uh, and that I think um, is a very 19th century concept, to be honest, this drive towards simplicity. Um, and it begins, it, it doesn't complete itself because we're still in the process, but it begins in the 19th century. I, you probably will disagree, but I think that is where it begins. Um, this, this drive for simplicity of analysis, simplicity of uh, understanding, and so forth. 
Dr. Das, I'm going to ask you to uh, mention the postal in a few moments and uh, some some um, articles that might be worth reading. But I, you talk about simplicity here. How, in, in terms of the book publishing industry in Holy Canada, have you gotten to the part yet where publishers are on the dust jacket putting bullet points what you will learn in this book? Have you gotten there yet? <clears throat> we have gone there, and I'll make it. It's, it's even worse. Um, Canada having such a thriving book industry. Um, <laughs> it's embarrassing, actually. Uh, but um, a runaway bestseller in Canada, guess how many copies sell for that? Oh, uh, 10,000? Uh, you're being optimistic. 2,500 <laughs> is a runaway bestseller in Canada. So unfortunately, despite our um, you know, appeal to being highly sophisticated and all that sort of thing, no one reads. Uh, very few people read. So a book a book that sells 2,500 copies is a national bestseller in Canada. So yes, it's riddled with bullet points. It's riddled with all of those strategies to make things simple and accessible. Um, and that is how it is here, you know. So, and somehow I think that is nothing new in the Western world. This is the norm, I think, uh, that we're talking about. So yes, there are plenty of books with bullet points in the back. Uh, which is what most people read when they buy that book. And, um, and unfortunately here, it means also that people are not buying books. Um, they may read, I don't know, but they're not buying books. Um, and, um, oh, by the way, 2,500 years, 25 books over two years, by the way. This is how they count them here. Not <laughs> a yearly count. <laughs> oh, dear, we're far gone. We're far gone. We are, we are, yes. So oh, let's not go there. <laughs> We do have a, um, a viewer comment, then we're going to do a sign off. But for the viewers, we, we're, we're going to take like a 15 minute break, 10, 15 minutes, and we'll be back for the second round. Um, but let's get uh, John's comment here. And, and if you feel like you'd like to respond, Dr. Doss, here we go. Uh, there we go. So the Black Legend, John Ziamba says, wonder, he wonders why the British felt it necessary to besmirch the Catholic Church? That's a very interesting question. And um, we could actually do a whole show on this because it's so it's such a broad and, and complex question. Uh, great question. Thank you, John, for asking that. Um, briefly, very briefly, um, it all comes down to our friend Henry VIII um, and his desire for you know doing what he did, which is to get a divorce and try to get a male child that could be the heir and which he could never get. Um, unfortunately, at this time, all kinds of forces are at play in England. Um, and those forces at play are, of course, vying for power. And one of the best ways to get at that power is through the printing press. And this creates uh, a very interesting dynamic, because if you will notice, uh, the usual bad guy is not only the Roman Catholic Church, but also the Spanish. So it's not the Inquisition that's so bad, but the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, so you have a double, you know, you're killing two birds with one stone. You're getting at the Catholics and you're getting also at the, the, the nasty Spaniards, who remember are rivals to your, um, to your power at the time. So the black legend serves really two important uh, functions in Britain at this time, in England at this time. Uh, and that is that uh, it, effectively derails the Catholics from whom power is being wrested away uh, and taken away very effectively by Henry, uh, Henry, Henry VIII. And it's also undermining uh, in Britain um, um, or propagandizing, propagandizing the British mind, the English mind against uh, the Spanish uh, powers, uh, against Spanish um, uh, rule. So, What's happening then is that people are being um, educated in a certain way, a new, different mindset is being created, um, and the black legend is the tool that creates this new mindset. Uh, so very briefly, this is how I would uh, uh, portray it. Um, we could go on, like I said, for, for quite a few longer uh, episodes with this, but very briefly, it's a, it's a very effective propaganda uh, machine that we're, that we're dealing with. And it works really well in England, by the way, very quickly. 
Um, indeed, although the, the BBC, I was going to mention, people who want to know a little bit more about the Black Legend and how it developed, the BBC has a documentary, I think from the 90s, that you, you ought to be able to get online easy enough, called the, the Myth of the Black Legend, and they get into the historiography of that concept. Uh, the next one, Dr. Doss, is a critique. Um, I'm going to put it up here. I'll address it first, and I'll let you um, digest it for a moment and, and come up with your comments. Um, so this is from a, a very loyal viewer here. This is Jeff Schmidt, and um, he, he, uh, it's a type of critique. My opponent's arguments are less complex and require less intelligence to understand. Um, and and um, I would like to respond to that by saying that's not um, what we're saying in this episode or the breakdown we're going to get into in the next one. What, what we are addressing in this last part of this episode is a decomposition in people in the mass population, regardless of your position on the Jesus myth concept. What we were trying to address by talking about zeitgeist outline of history and story of civilization without even getting into the 19th century is that the mass mind, the mass reading mind is getting increasingly lazy. I'm getting lazier. This guy, that guy, the other, our reading habits are, are, are not even reading habits. We're just looking at documentaries at this point. Even those of us who say, oh, we're so well read. That's the critique we're bringing up. Um, it's not, uh, at this point, we haven't really head on actually talked about the thinkers of this concept from the 19th century. We've just had to do this hour just to set up. Exactly. And very quickly, I would also like to suggest that uh, when we're talking about complexity and intelligence and all that sort of thing, um, we're not really talking about uh, mental capacity. We're really talking about this concept of education. Um, and really, um, in the end, what we're really discussing uh, is this idea that when we break down education into those areas that don't, that don't require any kind of expertise, that ask us to simply make up our minds about complex situations without any context, that is the real problem. Uh, because once we have um, ideas thrown at us and we have zero context. It's like me, someone coming up to me and saying, just because you're a doctor, how about doing some brain surgery? Um, that concept, of course, is just thrown at me. I can never do brain surgery. Uh, and that is what we're talking about. This idea that somehow uh, an uneducated mind, an untrained mind can immediately grasp everything, grasp the complexity, and then formulate uh, a proper response. I cannot grasp the complexity of brain surgery, for example, um, and never can, I will be able to. Um, and so it's beyond my competence. So if someone throws something at me about brain surgery, I can only come up with silence. So I think this is what we're getting at uh, with this idea of, uh, of how simplicity is being stressed over complexity. Uh, but this doesn't mean that we're saying that people are stupid. Uh, that's a different matter. Uh, what we're really saying, I think, ultimately, is this idea that the mind is what uh, needs to be addressed, uh, not the brain capacity. Well, I, we've created a different kind of a mindset. Um, it's, uh, I would suggest you read this really interesting book by Bruno Snell called The Discovery of the Mind. Um, and, you know, I won't go on about it, but I think that will help us understand what we're talking about. So Bruno Snell, the discovery of the mind. It's a brilliant book. And I will um, perhaps have the occasion in our next recording to, to point out this telescoping of, in particular, the Catholic mind that happens and a, a, what I feel to be a gross simplification of people's comprehension of church history, which has led to um, certain you know crises of faith when people actually come across this. But we'll save that for, for the next recording. Dr. Das, tell us about the postal. Yes, the postal, uh, the June issue is out. Please have a look at it, thepostal.com. Uh, some very interesting things, uh, two articles that I think you've read, John, on the early history of Islam. Very interesting. Um, and how, um, you know, basically that Islam is, in, is, a, is a Christian heresy and how we can arrive at some very interesting things there. So please have a look at it. I think you will enjoy it very much. Excellent. And anyone who is interested in my work, which is uh, teaching here in Connecticut at Apocasa Stasis, may find out about the college 
uh, a brick and mortar in person uh, fair, which is increasingly going to be rare as everything goes on Bill Gates' Zoom and, and whatever else uh, platforms uh, that are that are the hot thing. But um, if you're interested in that, uh, please go to apocastastasisinstitute.wordpress.com. It's getting pretty close to the wire for, for fall enrollment. Um, but uh, anyway, check it out. And I thank the uh, gentlemen who participated uh, in the comment section. Very much welcome. Thank the viewers for your attention. Certainly thank Dr. Doss for his time. And that um, I also finally would encourage everyone to go to the YouTube and BitChute channels of Christian History and Ideas, which will be in the description to this recording, and subscribe. And um, this uh, type of participation and connection is great to keep up with on uh, new episodes and whatever. So with that, um, Dr. Das and I bid you adieu. I asked Dr. Das to stay on, and we will be recording in about uh, 10 or 15 minutes. So you guys want to follow along, just uh, go take a coffee break, and we'll be back. So take care now. Thank you. Bye.